0: I think that the Palestinian struggle and the black struggle in the United States have in common is they're fundamentally fighting settler colonialism. And I think oftentimes that gets left out because it's put as, you know, in this country it was segregation or civil rights, the problem was, or in this it's apartheid. But in fact, it's really settler colonialism, fundamentally dispossessing people of land and the character of this whole society that's shaped by that. And violence, that creates a whole violent culture and society itself.
1: We're here to raise awareness so people can stop believing police narratives. I don't give a damn what they was wearing. I don't give a damn what criminal background they had. I don't give a damn what was discovered on the scene. I don't care about that. When you see somebody getting killed, unarmed, running away, putting your hands up, in your car, mind your business. They could have been smoking weed. I don't care about none of that. Because them band-aids don't fix bullet holes. No justice. No peace. What do we want? No what do we want? It?
2: Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And on today's show the convergence of the movement for Palestinian human rights and the movement for black lives here in the United States. Activists on the ground during the hard work of building solidarity and the nuts and bolts of the boycott divestment sanctions movement were in conversation at Georgetown University recently and we're bringing you some of those important remarks and strategies. And today, May 11, 2018, is four days before the 70th anniversary of the Nakba when 750,000 Palestinians were displaced and 13,000 were killed in the founding of the state of Israel. Since March 30th of this year, more than 40 peaceful Palestinian protesters have been killed in what has been dubbed the Great March of Return, and thousands have been seriously wounded with many requiring amputation of limbs shattered by Israeli Defense Force munitions that are designed to open inside the body and cause internal damage. At the same time, dozens of mothers of sons and daughters killed by the police in the United States were on Capitol Hill this week to demand corrective legislation to end the ability of police officers to kill with impunity. And so just before Mother's Day, we begin our show with the voices of these mothers, the impact of state violence in this country and a strategy for change.
3: I am Tambrisha Hudson, mother of Pia Lori. Calm down. You got
1: this.
3: You got it, boo. Sixteen years old, shot and killed, running away from the police, climbing a fence. Make your
1: time, Tambrisha. Take your time. Sorry. I'm speaking
3: for him. One one one. Yeah, Speaking for On behalf of my son Pierre Lori and the movement we have created which is the 411 movement oh, yeah. for Pierre Lori. I jumble my words so it's wrote down and I'm not a speaker so this is this is something new for me. The 411 movement for Pierre Lori is our outcry in response of family friends and community to the ever evolving culture of police violence being committed in Chicago with little and no accountability. I am here today alone with so many other mothers to say that our loved ones, we have to be their voices. We have to tell their stories. We want justice and we want it now. We want the laws that protect black people in this country from historically racist policing, policing systems that kill our people with malice and contempt. We want our elected officials to stand with us That's right. and demand that policing in the United States does not continue to allow black people to be killed with punishment for murderers who have guns, badges, and the authority that they abuse. We want the police officers to be held accountable for their racist tactics, violent measures, and for choosing to use excessive force on black women, men, and children living in urban communities throughout America. We want to leave here today believing that someone, that somebody, anybody on Capitol Hill cares about our losses, our trauma, our pain. This long suffering that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives. We want you to be willing to fight and stand with us and demand justice on behalf of all citizens that deserve respect, fair treatment, and due process.
1: We got this. No justice, no, no peace. peace. No justice, no peace. We
4: got okay, we have a mother here her son was not killed by the police but state sanctioned violence and her name is jackie Jackie.
1: hello it'd be so hard coming behind the mothers that have already spoken to see their pain but i'm the mother of kendrick johnson the 17 year old that was found dead in his high school wrapped up in a wrestling mat (laughs) My son was killed in the broad daylight with hundreds of students on that campus with cameras working. But the only camera that they found wasn't working was the one pointed in the direction of where they found his body. My family did not accept the conclusion they gave us. So they have been giving us hell and we've been giving them hell right bite, for five years since 2013. Out of all 3,000 school- students Nobody seen nothing. Uh, my son went and had a second autopsy done and all his organs were missing from the top of his head to his pelvis. This included his brain, his lungs, his liver, all the way down to his pelvis and his body was stuffed with newspaper. Oh so you tell me, if he if this was a freak accident, why all this? His clothes went missing, his fingernails were clipped on the scene at blood on the wall they didn't take the blood and do nothing with it they just contaminated the whole scene and I'm here today with standing with all these mothers yes. Organ harvest. Yes. Yes. I'm standing yeah. to bring focus back to Kendrick because they don't want nothing said. They want Kendrick case to stay closed. But I do declare. I tell them every day, every year, they killed the wrong child. Yes, they did. I am Kendrick Johnson. I will be Kendrick Johnson's mother to the day that I die. Right. I will speak up for my child until I can't speak no more because. We keep coming to Capitol Hill. We keep reaching out to people everywhere. But when are they going to do something about all our black and brown babies getting killed every day and nobody ain't doing nothing? We come, we crying out, we marching, we doing everything. And you're going about it the right way. But when is our time? When is justice for our babies?
5: My name is attorney Andrew M. Stroth. I'm a civil rights attorney and the founder of the Truth, Hope, and Justice Initiative, which is the women are here today. I'm also the managing director of Action Injury Law Group, which is a Chicago-based civil rights law firm, and we represent approximately 30 families whose sons have been unjustifiably and unconstitutionally shot and killed by police.
2: Okay, so you've been here in D.C. This is the second day. I understand the first day you did some action just trying to speak to members of Congress. So tell me what you want to accomplish out of this two days of action.
5: So we met with members of the Congressional Black Caucus yesterday, and we had a meeting with them, and we want what's very clear. Police should be held accountable when they violate our individual civil rights. Police should be held accountable when they violate our constitutional rights. 13 words need to be added to section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act. And what are those words? Qualified immunity shall not be a defense in a proceeding under this section. Right now, officers use qualified immunity as a shield to get away with unjustifiably and unconstitutionally shooting and killing our children. The Supreme Court recently came down with a case, Kinsella versus Hughes, and it gave more power to qualified immunity. If you read the dissent opinion by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, I'm going to read it. She said, such a one-sided approach to qualified immunity transforms the doctrine into an absolute shield for law enforcement officers, gutting the deterrent effect of the Fourth Amendment. It tells officers that they can shoot first and think later. And it tells the public that palpably unreasonable conduct will go unpunished. It is our ask of Congress to add 13 words to Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act. These are the words. Qualified immunity shall not be a defense in a proceeding under this section. So we're here today with mothers across the country and activists and supporters to speak to our political leadership demanding change and hopefully stop the unjustified shooting of our children in America.
2: Is there anyone from the members of Congress that you met with who are going to
5: introduce this amendment? Congresswoman Sheila Jackson is an advocate and one of the people we met with yesterday as well as Congresswoman Robin Kelly from Illinois those are two and they also are going to introduce us to others so what we want to do is speak to Democrats and Republicans and push for Congress to reform and to put in check the legal doctrine of qualified immunity
2: is there legislation already kind of drawn up, like our well, draft legislation to, for no, the amendment?
5: or there, There's different legislation that's been proposed yeah. already. There's there's several different pieces of legislation. What we're asking is a little different, which is basically the elimination of qualified immunity. So it hasn't been drafted, but we want to work with our leadership to draft that legislation. What has
2: to happen? I mean, what has to happen to make that happen?
5: Well, what needs to happen is we need to work with our members of Congress who have that power and work for us as their constituents to draft that legislation. Okay. Because if Qualified immunity remains in place. Our children will continue to be shot and killed, and officers will not be held accountable.
2: Is this the line that we keep hearing all the time when they say, I fear for my life?
5: Yeah, I fear for my life. He was reaching for a gun. He was reaching for his waistband. I mean, like Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, they can shoot first and then think later. Well, that's unacceptable. And there's got to be an objective standard or... Everyone has a right to trial. Let a jury decide what is reasonable or unreasonable versus the officer's one-sided perception of what happened.
2: Oh, and that's what's happening now. Yes.
5: Or, Or a prosecutor decides? Well, there's two sides. On the criminal side, it's district attorneys and state's attorneys and prosecutors that continue not to indict on actions that we believe are criminal. What we do is we file federal civil rights Section 1983 lawsuits in civil court And the standard in civil court Is a preponderance of the evidence Which is 51% more likely That the conduct was unreasonable So the criminal courts, as you know Is beyond a reasonable doubt That's the standard if you're going to charge an officer with a crime And indict him and convict him The civil case, which is what we do Is a preponderance of the evidence
6: Hi, my name is Daphne Robinson My son' name was Jabril Robinson, and we're from Atlanta, Georgia. When I got a call from him from the police station, he said, Mom, I've been arrested. My son was standing at the bus stop, getting ready to come home. Two officers pulled up to him, said he looked like a suspect that had just carjacked someone. And in that time, they said that my son resisted arrest. So they tased him, and they proceeded to beat him, and they took him to jail. So... They said that the reason that they felt that he was a suspect because of his hair. You see him on my shirt, he has long dreads. The two weeks after that, my son cut his hair off. He cut his hair because he felt like he was a target just by his demeanor, the way he looked. And getting back to the story of, you know, what happened when he was executed. He ran from the police. My son ran around the corner and into the back of a woman's home in which she said that she saw my son running and she heard shots. She said she saw my son fall to the ground and him get back up and proceeded to try to run again. She heard more shots and she saw my son fall face forward on the ground and he was not moving. She said that she was in horror to see that my son had been shot in his back the way that he was. When I, when I arrived on the scene, i was when i immediately got out of the car the police chief of clayton county came down and told me that i could not go any further that to go to the hospital my son was transported to the hospital in actuality i got to the hospital before my son did when i got there i begged them to allow me to see my son they put me in a room and when i got in this room I sat there for maybe 30 minutes for them to come in and tell me that my son had passed away, that he was deceased. I asked them, could I see my son? I was told no, because it was part of a um, GBI investigation. I was not allowed to see my child. I asked over and over and over again to let me see my son, just let me see him. I was not allowed to do that. It's sad how they, that don't value our children's life. They kill them down like they dogs. And they don't give us the respect as the parents, as the family. I cry every day for my son. I don't sleep at night. My whole family is affected by this. You know, it's hard. We, we need accountability. We need justice. We all need justice.
4: This has to stop. Hi, my name is Nigia Avery, and my son is Jalateef Williams, but they had him, we called him Jerry. On July the 2nd, my son was, he was murdered by Asheville Police in 2016. The thing that I do know is that my son got out of his car, and he put his hands up and said, my hands are up. And he opened up on my son with a high-powered rifle. He shot his left arm completely off. He shot my son up one side and down the other, across his chest, his neck, and head. But even with all of that, my son, when he fell on the ground, my son was still breathing. So I say, if my son can go through all of that and he can lay on the ground and breathe, there's nothing that I can't do. That's right. But when everything first happened, they wouldn't let me see my son. And when we first, when, we, when I first got to North Carolina, the um, the SBI was there waiting on us. And they told me, they said, "I don't know how it was when you saw your son last, but that's the last image of your son that you need to have in your in your mind, because the way he looks now is not the last image that you want to have." And the the, the uh, and then the second SBI agent told me the same thing. When we were on our way to North Carolina, someone had called uh, someone that was in the car with us and told us that my son had got shot in the face six times. So that's the only thing that was in my mind was that my son had got shot in the face six times. But I told the funeral home director that whenever he did get my son's body back, that I didn't care if my son did not have a head, that I wanted to have an open casket funeral. And that's what I was going to do because I wanted the world to see what they had done to my son.
2: You have been listening to just some of the mothers of those slain by police and Attorney Andrew M. Stroth of the Truth, Hope, and Justice Project speaking at a rally on Capitol Hill Thursday, May tenth, two 2018. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Ivarum. When we come back, Voices on Black-Palestinian Solidarity. Stay with us.
7: But for us, Black Lives Matter DC and black folks in general, state violence obviously is not something that's new. It comes in the form of whatever you see on TV, which is also not new, <laughs> but it also comes in forms that are not just police violence. When we talk about state violence, we're talking about the different kinds of violence that is used for a myriad of reasons, but mostly to criminalize, demonize. So when we talk about state violence as a solidarity issue, there's no way to not make the connection, especially between black folks and Palestinians. And a big thing that's probably not a surprise, and I'm sure we'll hear a little bit about it later, is that Kathy Lanier was like a premier... uh, We're gonna learn everything we can from the IDF and we're gonna bring it here and we're gonna treat black folks and those who dissent against the government like Palestinians. So what happened on J20, what happened with the many other anti-protest, anti-dissent fiascos with the police, which they call a brawl. They actually have a patch that says inauguration brawl because that's what it is apparently. So when we talk about that, then we start to see, right? We start to see that it's not that we are at, we're, we're grabbing at straws trying to make connections, and I think a lot of people feel that way, right? Like, okay, Palestinians have it bad, black folks have it bad, and okay, we, I mean, we can grasp at straws. But when you then look at the effect that, like, colonization in the ways that works, when you look at displacement and the power of displacement and the use of displacement, as a means of state violence, right? Because what you do is control where people live, how they live, and then you can decide when they leave, how they leave, or if they can stay and what you use against them to have them stay. Um, And so you look at settlements, you look at Gaza Strip, and you look at the ways in which if you dissent, if you are a troublemaker, then how about we just throw you out your house? How about when we look at police violence here, when, I mean, there's a, there's a very clear distinction in the way that the United States is militarizing police. And it's not just militarizing the police, it's militarizing policing, right? And so the same way that you see the IDF rolling down in various neighborhoods and communities with tanks and all the military gear they can fit on their person, I was in Israel and it was just like, like they walk down the street like that like not that it i mean but it's very different right there's a visual a very visual terror that comes with that right i mean i'm just like we're stopping at a a stoplight and they're getting on the bus with the m16s and they're okay yeah we just trying to go to the airport um but there's a definite feeling then of omnipresence right and that's something in dc that you can't ignore like i am from colorado and so the only times that the only time that police have their lights on is if they're like chasing somebody right or they're like doing business somehow right and so to come to dc and always see police lights on is wild number one because it's literally letting you know that they're there and so you create omnipresence, so this is, a, this is the beginnings of an actually, it's living in a police state to remind you that if you get out of line or forget and get comfortable, we're still here. We're everywhere. But it's a form of terror because now you have connected experiences and um, things that you've seen. Out here in D.C. there's, especially east of the river, there's jump outs. Don't let them tell you that they don't exist anymore. But the ability to stop you, never having to make a record, search your person. Uh, There's been two videos over the last month where people are searching body cavities of people and people. The cops are searching body cavities just of people that they are restraining or or whatever. And so then you start associating, when you see police, with these things. The other thing that's really important to understand about the pervasiveness of this entire state omnipresence and just always having you think of who's controlling you and being controlled is that our kids, if if I start in my neighborhood, right? So as soon as you leave the house, there's an officer Generally on my street, and generally around the corner. Kids see that on the way to school, and then they go to school, and there are SROs. There are police in the schools, right? They go home, the police are still in their neighborhoods. They've seen whatever they've seen with their parents or heard, um, see whatever they see on the weekend, and our kids grow up (coughs) with that idea of omnipresence right? So in looking at the ways in which we interact here in the United States as black folks with the state, with police, there's not a way to dissect the two. And there comes a critical moment when you realize that if we're really resisting here in the United States there are, oh, there's a limited amount of ways that repression and state violence work. Right? And there's not a way for us to resist here or for our brothers and sisters in uh, other siblings in Palestine to resist that, uh, that don't have connections to how it works, to what kind of resistance has worked, to how mutual aid works. When you need specific things in your community, and your family to be able to live, that the state either isn't providing or won't provide, right? Because what else is something that they police? How do you get your food? Food deserts? How do they do transportation to where you're going? These are all like sanctions on keeping people in place, right? Because also in Southeast, for Metro to cut their bills is cutting off the times that Metro runs. It's cutting off the times and the stops, number of stops in Southeast. And so what you see is there's control of movement. How many people have taking a bus like the 92, like from Southeast all the way up to Adams Morgan. And what you see is that cities, especially like DC, also have erected borders, right? Whether they're borders you can see or not, you start going, you see different neighborhoods, and with those different neighborhoods, you see different issues, and with the different neighborhoods, you see different communities that Either reflect what's coming in that community or what's coming out of that community. And it's no different. And so we can talk about like the actual, like everyday, terrible physical violence, because that's what like pulls out our heartstrings. But if we don't understand the ways that these function, if we don't understand how trauma plays out in our communities because of. If we don't understand that we now live in a world where all of these things are connected daily, that when you have a Muslim ban here, it affects the United States, not just the people in the United States, and not just immigrants, that in a place like DC, the majority of Muslim folks are black folks, that we can't forget that it's bigger than just that, right? And that's another border. So it teaches us, all of this teaches us to do like this with our communities, right? To get closer, to cut other folks off, to stay safe. But in that, we lose the power of solidarity, right? When we only think the way they think on this continent, right? If we're not thinking about these things internationally, we lose an entire part of that resistance. Because Palestinian folks, are doing things there is a resistance a lot of that has to do with where they live and the time that's passed but we can learn from those things the fact that now there's these exchanges the fact that now we're taking some of the stuff that they're doing now here and it's now going to Israel it's now going and being used in Palestine right so, you know, my hope today is that when everybody starts thinking about these things that we understand, right, because it's like that old saying that they always say is like, they will come for these people and you don't do anything. They will come to these people and they don't, don't do anything. And, and in Black Lives Matter, the truth is, you know, a lot of people say it, until Black Lives Matter, all lives do not matter. Right? That in this country especially, The fight for civil rights, the fight for black liberation automatically brings liberation for other folks. In every instance, the fight for abolition of slavery had direct impact on not just indigenous folks, but folks from other countries who who were either enslaved or indigenous folks. It also helped rural, poor, white folks the civil rights movement then you have the Chicano rights movement right then you have Stonewall then you have all of these things because when black lives matter it's the only way that all lives matter right and this is that this is being able to understand how this looks right and I keep saying understand because people like to say this a lot and we like to and and that's black lives matter too like to go to Palestine sometimes and take pictures, but until we actually talk about these things and understand, y'all wanna keep saying it, because it's more than words, right? Like, to us, it's life and death. To Palestine, it's life and death. So I appreciate being able to come out and talk. Um, I hope everybody heard something that's helpful. All right, thank you, April. So the next speaker up is Sahar Francis, and she's here from Adamir. She's the director of a Palestinian prison rights um, organization, and so she's gonna share right now.
8: Good evening, and thanks a lot for this opportunity. It's really very inspiring and empowering uh, to share experiences and to think together how we can face Oppression because I think it's the same policies So Domir is a prisoners rights association that was established 25 years ago in the uh, last years of the first intifada So our main aim was to offer free legal aid for Palestinian prisoners under the occupation Unfortunately, we ended up doing the same work under the Palestinian Authority as well I don't know how many of you know about the Palestinian Prisoners Movement, but they were all associated with African-American political prisoners, with Irish prisoners, with South African prisoners. So they were aware about the importance of the solidarity, and they were joining struggle When the Palestinian prisoners were supporting their Irish colleagues in the open hunger strike, when their black Africans were supporting Palestinian prisoners in the 70s in the hunger strike, it was the kind of solidarity that showed we are struggling together in order to live in a just world that is out of colonization, out of oppression, because it's the same colonization. Maybe in Palestine it's so visible till today, and there is clear uh, uh, ethnic cleansing on the daily level, whether eviction of communities, destroying houses, and controlling land, and water resources, but I think it's the same policies used in other areas, but in different ways. Definitely here in the United States, when we compare how people are evicted from their houses in order for the state to control and using the imprisonment is just as just like excuse in order to get this community out of this neighborhood it's the same what's going on in palestine with the settlement and the expansion of the settlement in order to control the land even in the inside the state itself when they push Bedouin communities out of their uh, unrecognized villages in the in Naqab Desert. It's the same policy actually. This is the state violence that is about to control the land, the water resources, and to dehumanize the Palestinian community. Specifically on the level of the prisoners, actually in my tour and also before my tour, there's lots of similarities that we can think about that these oppressors are using in the same way. Think about torture and methods of torture. Like, of course, you remember the images from Abu Ghraib in the Iraqi uh, context, and all this sack on the head and the ways of tying prisoners. This is, I think, was developed against the Palestinian prisoners in the 60s and the 70s, because every Palestinian prisoner would tell you what it looks like to be with this sack on the head for couple of days sometimes couple of weeks and tied in a very painful position sleep depraved and like listening to very noisy music and getting to be very like weak and then they will shake you so i mean all these techniques of physical torture in our uh, Palestinian context. I think they were using the Palestinian prisoners in order to develop these techniques in a way that at the end, in the early 90s, late 90s, it wasn't leaving any marks on the body. All these forms of different torture, you wouldn't be able to prove them in the court. So I think this technology, they are selling to the other regimes that they want to use torture and their interrogation. Solitary confinement as well. I think the Israeli learned about the solitary confinement from the United States context, from the Turkish context when you think about the solitary confinement sections in the Turkish experience where the prison is in a way of letter H and so on. So also the force feeding, like Israeli context, they were using the force feeding since the 70s. In the 80s, it caused a death of three Palestinian prisoners. So the high court stopped the policy and they said it's illegal. But unfortunately, after the initiative of the force feeding since 2011, the continuous individual or mass (coughs) hunger strike, the Israeli court in 2015 confirmed a bill, to enable the Israeli prison uh, authority to force feed. And I think they were getting the courage to do so from the Guantanamo uh, experience that it happened in the United States on daily basis. The international community did nothing about the force feeding policy against the detainees in Guantanamo. So this is how they pack each other in developing these technologies of torture and uh, uh, violations. And this is what makes it very, very important for us, people on the ground, people who struggle on the daily level, to build this network and to build joint solidarity campaigns. I'll give you an example of such a campaign that uh, was initiated by Domir and other uh, NGOs in 2014 in the time of the hunger strike actually against a security corporation called G4S This is a British-Dutch security company that was involved in our context in the settlements and in the checkpoints and in six prisons inside Israel, giving them facilities and equipment for uh, security stuff so they can control more the prisoners. So when we discovered that this company is involved also uh, in the prisons with the support of Who Profits, the organization that do the legal research, And we decided to go up with the campaign, but then we also were contacting other groups that if they can give us information about the complicity of this corporation with other prisons and other violations of human rights in other areas, and it was true. They are existing in the United States, they exist in the UK, and in, even in the, uh, like the UN headquarters. in some places, they hire G4S companies. Bill Gates, for example, was contacting and contracting G4S. So the, the campaign at the end was supported by so many other organizations and grassroots from all different countries. And it succeeded. Bill Gates like, pulled his investment within three months when we started to attack him and send him letter on daily basis. Uh, the EU as well was reactive and they finished the contract with G4S. Unfortunately, the UN refused to end the contract with G4S, but two years after G4S pulled from the occupied territories. So they don't present now in the occupied territories. This is the kind of work that we can really succeed in when we jointly thinking about these policies that it's happening everywhere. So we have to campaign together, and there's other ways, like I think we should be creative in not just focusing on one model of divestment, but there is also the accountability element where we can do work together, for example, uh, our meetings today with the U.S. campaign in the Congress level. We shouldn't undermine this kind of work, whether in the governmental level or the UN level, I think. Even though if we believe that it's not so effective, yes, it's taking much more time than we usually expect. But I think this is also still very important work that we should do together and not just mobilization on the ground. It, it should go together, in my opinion. The mobilization of the communities and the people to struggle but in the same time the professional uh, work that uh, some NGOs are doing. So for me, it's very, very important to be in, like, today here and to hear the stories and to get to learn more about your experiences so I can take it back with me to Palestine. And please, if you are also willing and you want to be more associated with the prisoners, Palestinian political prisoners' issues, we are always there and happy to... Feed with information and to figure how we can coordinate together. Thank you.
2: This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, more voices on Black Palestinian solidarity. Stay with us.
8: Yeah.
0: Some of y'all think it's a trend, a fashion statement. Disgustingly, I spit on the pavement. It's basic. Y'all know I bang for my flag. My bandana ain't no rag. The kofia ain't no scarf. It's a part of the movement. The symbolism is resistance, no coincidence that you can see the RBG in it. Cable meet the bandera, ain't it beautiful? I say it in Spanish, it's solidarity, the feelings is mutual. Meanwhile, high that's M1 in Arabic. I'm pro palestini does that make me a terrorist? You can catch me in Gaza and Haifa or Ramallah, but I'm still just Mutulu Oluballah. So when i rap the shaja, we rhyme with our middle fingers up to the Zionists because we don't give up. Oh, it's justice. So tie that thing around your head and ride. Wave it in the air and let me know what side you want. Yeah. The is Arab.
7: Thank you so much, Sahar. So next up, we're going to have Ben Woods from a local group called the Pan-African Community Action.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you all for having me. Good to be here tonight. Uh, Like she said, my name is Ben. I'm with an organization called Pan-African Community Action. Uh, We are a pan-Africanist human rights organization, meaning that we see the struggle of black people, not just in the United States, but black people all over the world as a common struggle, particularly for the United States of Africa, and also we're a human rights organization. One of the things that I think that the Palestinian struggle and the black struggle in the United States have in common is they're fundamentally fighting settler colonialism. And I think oftentimes that gets left out because it's put as, you know, in this country it was segregation or civil rights the problem was, or in this it's apartheid. But in fact, it's really settler colonialism fundamentally dispossessing people of land and the character of this whole society that's shaped by that, of violence, that creates a whole violent culture and society itself. So what our, one thing our organization attempts to do early in is move, and something that was said uh, back in the 1960s, was move from a civil rights struggle to a human rights struggle. Because oftentimes when you paste it to a civil rights struggle, you're talking about one particular nation state, one society that gives you the rights, human rights instantly sort of in a way can help to internationalize the struggle because that's oftentimes what black people have been trying to do you see a more radical edge as April came up and talked about earlier was when we push human rights like other people have in the past and not just a liberal form of human rights not just one that fights for you know small things but Uh, Human rights, that is in the history of the way black people in the United States, such as the National Negro Congress, who in 1946 tried to take the case of black people to the United Nations, people like W.B. Du Bois, there was a group called the Civil Rights Congress in 1953, had a something called We Charge Genocide, which was saying that the uh, situation of black people, there's an actual genocide being committed of lynchings in terms of health, education, healthcare, everything, that there's an actual genocide, and it was a book that was written. People like Malcolm X, who said that you have to take the case of black people in the United States to the United Nations to struggle. And that wasn't something because we saw the United Nations as the ultimate uh, liberator of black people in any way whatsoever, but as a strategic goal for many reasons. As I said, one, it internationalizes the problem of black people in the United States. So kind of connecting to that history, something that our organization has worked on is this decade, I think from 2015 to 2024 was the international decade for peoples of African descent that the United Nations had. Something that we've done is The United Nations Rapporteur actually sent a working group to the United States. It was the United Nations Working Group for People of African Descent, and it was actually chaired by the daughter of Franz Fanon, Uh, who was a great uh, psychologist from Martinique who fought an Algerian liberation struggle. And our organization was an anchor group as it went to five different cities to really do an investigation of the condition of black people in the United States. It was Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, Jackson, and Baltimore, I believe. And so one thing we did was do like a forum in Southeast DC as well as show them different uh, civil society groups, black civil society groups that are doing work around various issues of health, education, LGBT rights, people who've been uh, victimized or family members have been shot by the police. Things such as those to really help to try to make those connections to different organizations and groups throughout the world. For us, the struggle of black people isn't just because black people aren't just in the US, they're in the Caribbean, throughout the entire Western Hemisphere, Europe, even parts of Asia, of course, Africa as well, right? Something that is important is that in 2008, there was the Department of Defense expanded something called the Africa Command or Africom, and so this is something that attempted to expand the sort of I guess people call the military industrial complex, but is the development of something that was able to attempted to try to place a base in the on the African continent and. It actually has been very successful in doing that because in the last few years, I think it's come out with the situation in Niger, the the the, the troops the soldiers that were killed recently, that the United States actually does have bases, sort of quasi-bases that it never quite claims. And as we talk about the increasing militarization of even foreign policy in the State Department and these weaponizing. So we talk sometimes about Iraq and Syria, Afghanistan and militarizing those weapons. And I think people know about the 1033 programs that have come where excess equipment sent to the United States for police departments here. But even as this happens in African continent, as they increasingly start drone bases, increasingly militarized foreign policy there and, and send troops this creates, you see sort of connection and the necessity of Pan-Africanism because those excess weapons possibly more likely will be sent here to the United States for police departments as well. So one of the things that we work on so we see as the ultimate case for human rights is as a fundamental human right is community control the ability of local communities to have democratic control over their communities whether it's in the field of education, their health care, but for us, we're particularly focusing on a campaign for community control over police. And that is something that actually has a historical precedent with the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Uh, that was something in the late 60s and the early 70s they worked on. So even people like Fannie Lou Hamer in the 1970s was actually helping to fight for community control over police. So a lot of times we say, Asada taught me, Asada taught me. That's something she sought for in the Black Panther Party in New York. That's what Asada taught us. So community control over the police is something that includes really the right to hire and fire local police really to control the budget and it's just a means so that you can actually have like a board that is able to actually have those powers so that you have democratic local control of the police itself so that's the campaign that we're working to build with other organizations and looking to work with as many people as possible So that's generally the the connections, I mean, I think we make, but I think one of the central connections to make is there's so many people I've mentioned, Malcolm X made the connection between people, and there's actually a good article, if you go online, written by Malcolm X called Zionist Logic, and he makes a really good article, sort of an anti-Zionist critique of Israel. And so you can go through the history of black people in the U.S. tell the date and you can find a constant solidarity and just the reasons. But the basis, I think one of them, is really settler colonialism and that idea that that's the fundamental issue that confronts both groups.
7: Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ben. So the next person that's going to come up, Iman. So Iman Abdel-Fadil is going to come up and talk to you about a program at Georgetown that she helped start, basically started, because she's amazing.
9: (laughs) Hi, as Olivia said, my name is Iman Abdel-Fadil. I just graduated from Georgetown. I was a co-founder of Georgetown University, forming a Radically Ethical Endowment, which is a divestment campaign focusing on private prisons and companies profiting off of the occupation of Palestine. So GU Free actually started in the summer of 2016. Students for Justice in Palestine had been sort of considering a divestment campaign for the prior three years that I had been there, but there was ne- it never seemed like the right time. We were always told, wait, uh, build more power, do some more community education. But then that summer, the Movement for Black Lives' platform had come out and had given a lot of policy prescriptions on how to show solidarity with black people and how to advance black liberation movements. And they also included a very supportive statement in recognition of the situation of Palestinians and refused to back down from that, even when it got a lot of backlash. Another point, That really pushed our decision was the year before that a lot of attention about Georgetown's past had come to light because they were going to name two of the new residence halls on campus after slave owners and that really started a lot of feelings for black people who were going to a school that was built on the sale of 272 black people and so for us that was a mandate to act both people in Palestine organizing and those People who wanted to act in solidarity with their black classmates. So we saw both of the experiences. We saw how they affected both groups of students on campus. But they are the black experience and the Palestinian experience. We understood that they were not the same experience. But we did find a common theme in state violence, and that is the state appropriating and mobilizing its monopoly on coercive power to sort of like terrorize often racialized communities. And because it's politically authorized and legitimized and normalized, it often goes unquestioned. And both the occupation of Palestine and the caging of mass amounts of black people and native people and Latinx people and poor and working class people for profit often goes unquestioned. So we made a coalition formed of 20 student groups, a few other community organizations, and over 60 professors. And that was GU-free, so we had three points, the first of which was we wanted the university to release its entire investment portfolios, both its direct investments and a list of its fund managers and what they were invested in. Because we recognized our campaign, obviously as any campaign, has to stay focused. And we focused on anti-occupation work and private prison work for a reason, but Regardless, any money in Georgetown's $1.2 billion investment portfolio should not be used to terrorize other human beings. The second point that we talked about, or the second goal that we had, was to divest from companies knowingly and consistently involved in companies that profit off the occupation of Palestine. And for us, that included companies that knowingly contribute to or maintained the settlements in the West Bank, companies that helped enact and maintain the apartheid barrier, and companies that contribute to the collective punishment of Palestinian civilians and also the forcible displacement of Palestinian civilians. We also made an explicit reference to the 2005 BDS call, a call from Palestinian civil society calling upon the international community to take these actions, which I think also had kind of a detrimental effect on our campaign, but I think something that we learned is it's important to stay faithful to our mission and not really compromise on our language to make other people comfortable because you're setting out and betraying a lot of other groups who ask you to do that. So the third pillar was calling for divestment from the private prison industry, and that included companies like CoreCivic, G4S, and CEO, but we also targeted the private prison industry as a whole because without other organizations or industries, for example, Wells Fargo. Private prisons would not be able to sustain themselves for another day. Actually, in October, the university announced that it will be divesting from private prisons, finally. Um. Yes, very exciting. So that's good news, but there's always more work to be done. I'd also like to speak more on organizing and doing solidarity work on campus in general. So universities should ideally be in the interest of educating for justice. And I think that's something that Georgetown has always laid out its mission to do. We talk a lot about Jesuit values and what that means. That professors are supposed to teach, that students are supposed to um, do with their education. But we saw that the university didn't really, in terms of its investment portfolio and business relationships, didn't really take that into account. Obviously, acting in the capacity of students on a campus, we are very limited in what we can and can't do, but it's important to sort of mobilize our power as students and push the university to do better things. So this was a very, very, very drawn out process and something that I learned from it from lots of meetings in which administrators and the board of directors expressed sympathy and sort of gave lip service to oh the occupation is bad but or private prisons are bad but we make a lot of money off of them we cannot fall for politics that are rhetorically satisfying there's always room for improvement and they just have to be pushed to them i actually gave a presentation about solidarity last about a month ago at the students for justice in palestine conference and I think it was a really important conversation that needed to be had about organizing in black spaces or organizing around black spaces if you are not a black person. So right now, uh, black people and black, blackness are hyper-visible. Obviously, race is seen as a marker of difference, and that puts black people on display immediately. And in the news right now, we see that with the ways that black people are targeted, executed, criminalized. And something that I see a lot is people draw upon the discourse surrounding that because it's something people recognize. People recognize the plight of black people. People recognize race as a construct. But I think something that we tried to stay faithful to was the idea that the black experience and the Palestinian experience are not the same. The legacy of slavery isn't something that no other group of people can ever, ever, ever identify with. But often, in both Palestine organizing spaces and literally every other organizing spaces, sometimes this idea of blackness is latched onto and seen as a universal framework for oppression. Because it sort of gives that recognition to our cause when we put it in terms of, hey, our group of people is suffering just like black people are suffering. People c- it makes the point more salient. Second of all, it sort of mobilizes and commodifies black pain and trauma to make a point which is a form of ingenuous transactional solidarity, one that we should not be in the interest of if we're seen as, like, true allies. So that's something to always be mindful of in organizing spaces. I guess I'd just like to end on, it is not really, at least at Georgetown, it divestment work did not look very promising, but it's important work to do, and I think, if anything, that we have to keep pushing these narratives have to keep pushing people to do better oftentimes it seemed like in the context of palestine people were more prioritized like making a more palatable definition of zionism as opposed to like actually forming like cohesive relationships and building solidarity with palestine and in the context of prison divestment we'll often say hey prisons are bad but The money that we make off of it is basically running our school. We can always do better. And again, being mindful of the ways and the space that we are taking up in our organizations is very important. Thank you.
2: You have been listening to activist Iman Abdel-Fadil and before her Ben Woods, Sahar Francis and April Goggins speaking on Black Palestinian Solidarity. And that will do it for today's show. A special thanks to Chantel James for her reporting at that Georgetown University event held in December 2017. The music we played this hour included What Rough Beast" by Burnt Sugar and Al-Khafi Arabi by Shadia Mansour and featuring M1 of Dead Press. This is On the Ground, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Avarum. On May 12th, I'll be in D.C. at the Think Local D.C. space at the Funk Parade on U Street. And on May 13th, I'll be in Tacoma Park, Maryland at the Grant Avenue Market. Folks here in the DMV, please help us raise money for WPFW starting next week during the Spring Membership Drive. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.